You turn to Revelation chapter 21 in your Bibles, Revelation 21. And the fellows have some Bibles so that you can follow along as we look at God's Word. So as they make their way back, just get their attention if you need a copy of the Scriptures. And please do get one. If you didn't bring one, that's fine. That's why we have these. Get one so that you can follow along. And the page is marked for you at uh, Revelation 21, fairly easy to find, second to the last chapter in the entire Bible. So just go to the back, and you'll be very close. We've begun a four-week series last week on the subject of heaven. So this is the second of four weeks on that subject, following which we will have four weeks where we'll hear from our pastors in training. On the 26th of this month, we'll hear from Zach Hamilton, and then on August the 2nd, we'll hear from Matt Owen, on the 9th from Larry Castle, and then on the 16th, we'll hear from John Veldus. On August the 23rd, we will then begin a new series together, looking at themes from the book of Hebrews, particularly relating those to the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible. It's my hope in that way that we will better have a grasp on that first portion of our Bible that so many of us uh, understand so little, and I hope it will be helpful in that, that regard. Last week, we saw that our future home in heaven should be motivation for service to the Lord in the here and now, in the present, as we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Today, we're going to see from Scripture what heaven will be like. And then next week, we're going to look at what Scripture tells us about what we'll be like in heaven. And then two weeks from today, we will see what is required in order for one to be in heaven. So today we're going to see what the scriptures have to say about what heaven will be like. I must say that sometimes we overstate our case when we tell you what we're going to talk about. I remember uh, when Kim and I were first married, we attended a very large church for the first year of our marriage and then found what became our parent church for this church here on Baptist in Flat Rock. We're at this very large church uh, on a Sunday morning, and the assistant pastor got up and said, come tonight, come for our Sunday evening service, because our pastor is going to begin a series on prophecy, things that are going to happen in the future. And in particular, he's going to be talking about the battle of Armageddon. Many of you are familiar with that, the final battle in the book of Revelation. And he says, come tonight to find out if the United States will be involved. Find out. When Armageddon is going to happen? Find out if Russia will be involved. And on he went. And I was thinking to myself, even as a young man, that's a tall order. So we came that night, and the pastor got up, and the first thing out of his mouth was what I said a bit ago. Sometimes we overstate our case. (laughs) He said, the truth of the matter is, we really can't and should not go beyond what Scripture tells us about any matter. And there are all kinds of questions about heaven that all of us would love to be answered, some of which the Bible does not answer. We could speculate. We could speculate about what children, what age children will be who have died and gone to heaven. How large will their bodies be? Will they be full-grown adults? The Bible doesn't tell us that. If you want me to speculate, I can do that, but I don't use the pulpit for those purposes. So today and next week, as we look at what heaven will be like and we look at what we will be like, we're going to focus on what God has told us about those matters. 
so that we can stand firmly upon what he has said about this issue of heaven. We have but one source, the Holy Scriptures, what God has said about what heaven will be like. And yet, unfortunately, that does not keep folks in our culture from talking about that about which ultimately they are ignorant. Heaven is not overlooked in general conversation or in popular culture. The modern world has an infatuation with heaven. People want to talk about it often. They write books on it. A woman named Betty Eady wrote a book called Embraced by the Light. It went to the top of the bestseller charts in which she talked about her near-death experiences. And it's filled with all kinds of incorrect, unscriptural teaching. Angels have become a big topic of conversation. Even television programs are focused on angels very often as people look to supernatural beings all over the place. And so we've had programs like Highway to Heaven and Touched by an Angel and recent books like Talking to Heaven, A Medium's Message of Life After Death by James von Prague. Heaven and Earth, Making the Psychic Connection by von Prague as well. The infatuation with psychics and angels and demons and the like is seen virtually everywhere. The result is that the heaven of today in no way resembles the heaven of Scripture. Wouldn't you agree? And we must be careful to confine ourselves to what Scripture says because those things about which Scripture is somewhat vague are the playground of false teaching. Folks love to seize and then speculate and often lead in a wrong direction when they go beyond what Scripture has said. Here's what the Bible tells us. No eye has seen and no ear has heard. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. We can't make it up. We don't know in and of ourselves. The only way we know is by virtue of what God has chosen to make known, to reveal, to expose to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. And that's why I've titled this sermon in our series, Heaven, Sweet Home, No Earthly Idea About Heaven. We don't have any earthly idea. We can't make it up. But you can believe this. Heaven is going to be more spectacular than we could ever imagine. And we are given glimpses of that in Holy Scripture. And we'll be able to see some of those today. I want you to understand first that the Bible teaches us, and I have for you in your outline, I invite you to follow along, that heaven is indeed a place, and it is a place in the present. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, that verse suggests to you, as we will see, that heaven is going to relocate, as it were, in the future. But even though there will be a relocation and a redesign of heaven, the Bible tells us clearly, in the future, in the present, heaven is also a place, a real place to which all of those who have come to Jesus Christ in this life go to be with the Lord. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes says the day of death is better than the day of birth. 
Now, he was lamenting how bad things are in this life, and so I'd rather die than have been born. That's really the context there. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, it is actually the case that we look forward to our home going because we will, in the present, be in the presence of the Lord. And that's why Paul could write in your New Testament, to live is Christ. And for him and for all believers, to die is gain. We saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 last week, Paul writing, I would prefer to be away from the body and thus at home with the Lord. You all remember Jesus on the cross talking to a thief, a repentant thief. And you remember Jesus' words to him. When? Today. You will be with me in paradise. Heaven is a present Place for those who die in Jesus. There is a future for heaven that we will see, but it is a present reality, and it is a present place. And so where is it? Well, Scripture says this. It says of Paul, Paul writes and says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I, Paul, was caught up into what he calls the third heaven. You say, I think I missed the first two. What is the third heaven? Well, there are three places that heaven is used to refer to in Scripture. The third heaven, as we will see, is the dwelling place of God, the place to which God's people go in the present when they depart this life. But there are two other uses of heaven in Scripture for the first heaven and the second heaven. The first is of the atmospheric heaven, the atmosphere around the earth, the air and the rain and the clouds and so on. It's the place where the hydrological cycle occurs. And so you have passages like Isaiah 55, as the heavens are higher than the earth. Speaking of the atmosphere, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Or the psalmist says in Psalm 147, He, God, covers the sky, that is, the heavens, with clouds, the atmospheric heavens. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. And so the first heaven, as it were, is is the atmosphere, the atmospheric heavens, the rain, the clouds, the hydrological cycle. But then there is the planetary heavens, the stars and the moon and the sun and and the planets. We commonly refer to it as outer space. And so you have that referred to in Genesis chapter one. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night. And then you have the third heaven of which Paul spoke in second Corinthians chapter 12 and of which he had a vision in this life, the divine heaven, the place where God dwells, the third heaven, And it is located, the Bible tells us, uniformly above. And it tells us that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. In the Old Testament, Isaiah says, For this is what the high and lofty one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah says further, look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. 
The psalmist speaks of the location of heaven as above when he writes, From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. And again the psalmist writes, The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high, from heaven. He viewed the earth throughout the Old Testament. The dwelling place of God, the third heaven, is above and also in your New Testament as well. Revelation chapter 3, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. You may remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is where? In heaven. And Jesus, when he gave us the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he said this. This then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. John chapter 6, Jesus said that he came down from heaven. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And so God dwells above. God dwells in what the Bible calls heaven, referring to the third heaven, the dwelling place of our God. Above, the place to which all of his people go immediately upon departure from earth. As you think about that fact... Heaven is, then, a place that cannot be located on a map. Its precise spatial location is not defined. You can't do a map quest on heaven. So the most we can say about the place of heaven is that it's somewhere outside the world as we know it. We can be sure that it's an actual place because of the one who came from it, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who went back to it, Acts chapter 1. Yet we don't know precisely where it is. But think about the immensity of God in relation to the physical heavens and then relate that to the heaven of God. The moon, part of the second heaven, is about 252,000 miles from Earth. And it takes a ray of light about one and a half seconds to travel that distance. The sun is 93 million miles from the Earth. Mercury is slightly more than half that distance, 57 million miles, and light takes 4 minutes and 30 seconds to reach it. The sun is about 8 minutes away at the speed of light. Our own solar system is about 8 billion miles, 700 light minutes. Our galaxy is about 100,000 light years and is one of billions of galaxies, all of them created by the hand of God. Heaven is located somewhere in relation to all of that, though outside of it. And yet, in spite of that great distance, Jesus was able to say to that thief on the cross, this day, today, you will be with me in paradise. Wherever that is, as far away as that is, in an instant, God transports his people into his presence. And you think to yourself, God dwells somewhere? God lives somewhere? But I thought God was everywhere. I thought God was omnipresent. It would be best for you to think of it, although heaven is most certainly a place outside of the first and the second heavens, the third heaven, 
God is not confined to it, as we're confined, might be confined to a room. Think of it as relational more than spatial. God has a special relationship to that place. You might use an analogy when you think about the fact that the Bible tells you that the Holy Spirit indwells every person who comes to Jesus Christ. Dwells in us, but isn't the Holy Spirit omniscient? Or excuse me, omnipresent and omniscient everywhere. So how is it that he dwells in me? How is it that he dwells in you? Well, it's not so much spatial as it is relational. God has a special relationship to the temple that is the body of the believer. And it is that temple by virtue of that special relationship. And God has a special relationship to the place that the Bible calls heaven. It is above. It is immense. And it will come down from heaven, as we'll see in Revelation 21 in just a bit. And the writers of Scripture, as best as can be done under the inspiration of God, penned as best they could descriptions of what heaven is like. God gave visions of heaven to people like Ezekiel and people like the Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation. When you have time, read, not now, but read Ezekiel chapter 1. God gave a vision of heaven to Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is doing the best he can to describe what is virtually indescribable. And I give you a few passages out of what Ezekiel saw in this vision of heaven. He says, I saw what looked like a throne of sapphire. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that. From what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down. And I heard the voice of one speaking. What do you all think we'll do when we come in the presence of Jesus? Oh, I'm going to party. And our worship services are party times today. In the presence of God. You know, the first thing you'll do is you'll bow down. And I will bow down out of reverence, gratitude, and thankfulness. That's what Ezekiel did. And John the Apostle seeks to give a glimpse of heaven in human words as best he can, frail attempt though it be, in chapter 4 of Revelation. Here's what he says. Ezekiel's vision ends with a throne and John's vision begins with a throne. And he says in chapter 4, Before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white. They had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. And also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass. 
as clear as crystal. And whenever the living, John goes on, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, whenever they do that, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they were created and have their being. This is a human attempt to give us a glimpse of what is really the indescribable beauty and grandeur of heaven. And friends, do not make the mistake of thinking that you can imagine with your human mind what heaven is like beyond what Scripture, Holy Scripture, is able to give us in human words. Heaven is the abode of God, the dwelling of God in the present. That one day we will, where one day we will all be who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. If we die before he returns. The Bible teaches us as well, and I say in your outline, that heaven will be a new place in the future. A new place in the future. And notice verse 2 of Revelation 21. I saw the holy city... The new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This new heaven, this new location, this new relationship between God and his people is predicted throughout the word of God. In the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, many times we have mentions of this new heaven and new earth. The psalmist says this. In the beginning, you, God, laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be discarded. The present heavens and the present earth will be discarded. And God will change them as it were like you would change a garment. Isaiah says this. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And just ponder that for a moment. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Thanks be to God. Living in a fallen world, do you not want a place where the former things do not come to mind? But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Isaiah speaks again of this new heaven and new earth. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. When I prepare this new heavens and new earth, it will last forever, says God. And then in your New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter speaks of the disillusion, the, the destruction of the current heavens and earth with great detail in 2 Peter 3. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. 
being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The heaven will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And why does God delay? We, his people, long for his return. We long to be with him. Why does he delay? Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3. Those words that I have on the screen are listed there, but then in verse 9. Here's what the Bible says. But God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why does God delay? He's giving time for men and women to come to him. They will not be destroyed with the earth, which is passing away, those who come to Jesus. And God wants none, none to perish. And that includes you. And at the end of our time, you'll be given opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and one day be where He is. Heaven is going to be, verse 2 of Revelation 21, in a new location. Isaiah predicted that, as we've seen in the first part of your Bible. And then Revelation 21 is a full explanation of what Isaiah predicted in the first part of your Bible. And the context of Revelation 21 is this. The final battle of Armageddon has been fought and won by the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19. And the millennial reign of Jesus, a thousand year reign upon the earth, has concluded. Chapter 20 and verse 7. And the great white throne of judgment has occurred. That Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 and following speaks of. And before that great great white throne, I saw all, both small and great, all those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life, and they stood before their maker, their creator, their judge. And they, along with the devil and his angels, were cast into the lake of fire. All of that has happened when you come to Revelation 21. And then John says, I saw a new heaven, thanks be to God, and a new earth. It will be in a new location. Coming down, verse 2, out of the present heaven. And heaven will be merged with this new-fashioned heaven that will be the eternal dwelling place of God and His people. And it will be new in a number of ways, chapter 21 tells us. I say in your outline. Heaven will be new in quality. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the the old order of things is has passed away. Completely different. Qualitatively different place. A new order of life. Impossible for us living in a fallen world to imagine its grandeur. But God promises this absolutely new, qualitatively better existence for us. No tears, no pain, no sorrow, no crying free from the effects of sin and evil. No sickness, no hunger, no trouble, no, tra- no tragedy. 
Some of us may think, but I've had loved ones who have gone before me. They, they passed. They didn't know Jesus. How can there be a heaven when all the while there is still, there is, friends, a hell? And how can I enjoy the splendor of heaven if I have loved ones who have gone to hell? Do you remember what Isaiah said? There are some things we will remember no more. And we're going to see next week that there are some things, some blessed things we will remember. We're going to have relationships with our loved ones in heaven together. We're going to know each other. That may come as a relief to some of you, to some of you not so much. But God in His grace is going to have some things that we simply will remember no more. We will be overwhelmed, friends, by the satisfaction of this glorious heaven and the presence of our God. And there will be nothing, no thing, not, no one, that will diminish the grandeur and the blessedness and the glory of being with Him in that place. And that's why Paul said, Now we see through a mirror darkly, says the King James. But then we will see face to face. It will be qualitatively different, but also, notice in your outline, heaven will be new in its inhabitants. Verses 6 through 8. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral who practice magic arts, idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That is the second death. New inhabitants. Only, only the heirs of the promise, Ephesians chapter 2, in Jesus Christ will inhabit God's heaven for eternity. Only. Only the children of God. Only the saints of God. No sin. No sinner whose sin is not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ will enter into that blessed place. And it will be a blessed place in large part for that reason. No longer in the presence of the kinds of people described in verse 8. Those who mock. Those who revile truth and revile God and revile God's people will be present in that holy place. New inhabitants. And it'll have a new design. Verses 9 through 21 give a long and detailed account of the new design of the heavenly city. We don't have time to cover all of that, but I want you to note beginning in verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates. And with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. Verse 14. The wall of the city had twelve foundations on them. 
were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, its walls. The city was laid out like a square. As long as it was wide, he measured the city with the rod, found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. Foundations were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first of jasper, second sapphire, third chalcedony, the third emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, eighth beryl, ninth topaz, tenth chrysoprase, eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. What a, what a place. It mentions walls. Why do you need walls? Walls for security, but no, there will be no enemies left. And it's a symbol of the glory of God that his people are in perfect security for all eternity. No one, no enemy left to harm us. It has gates. It has gates that keep out, symbolically, any who would seek to enter. They won't be able to, but God symbolically says there will be none who will be able to enter over the walls or through the gates. And it says that they will be opened and people will be able to that inhabit the walls will be able to go in and out. Verses 12 through 14 tell us that Israel will be there, the church will be there, all peoples of the earth who have come to Jesus Christ will be there. Verses 15 and 16 tell, of us of, tell us of its immense size. It gives it in terms of cubits and stadia. How big is it? It's a perfect cube. 1,500 miles. Cubed. It is 2.25 million square miles. Just think of the size this way. London is 621 square miles. This is over 2 million square miles. The materials are materials unimaginable, beginning in verse 18 and following. And this is John's attempt to describe our eternal home with our God and our Savior. And last, I want you to notice that heaven will be a new design, but it will also be a place that's new in its, what I call, necessities. You see, there are things here and now that are necessary to us that will no longer be necessary in heaven. And verse 22 through 25 tell us of that. Notice, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And it does not need the sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. So notice. There will be no necessity of a temple. Why? Because the dwelling place of God is now with men. God is the temple. We are now with Him in the holy city to which the hearts of all the redeemed have longed for all of human history. No temple. 
It will require no outside light source. God himself is the brilliant light that will illumine the heavenly city. It will require no security system. No guards on the walls. No need to shut the gate and watch the walls at night, as is the case today. And there will be no, no needs at all. No physical needs. Chapter 22, the very last chapter of the entire Word of God, tells us that we will have no needs. And in verse 2, it tells us that there will be a healing for God's people. And the word that's translated healing is the word from which we get our word therapeutic. There will be a therapy, as it were, performed by our God, meeting the needs of all of His people. And in chapter 22, verses 3 through 5, we are told that there will no longer be any vestige of the curse of sin. Now, friends, we have been saved in coming to Jesus Christ from the penalty of our sin, past, present, future. And when we come to Jesus Christ, we are also released from bondage to sin, from the power of sin. We are saved from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. But we still live in the presence of sin. And God tells us in the very last chapter of the Bible, there will no longer be any effects of the curse. You will be removed from the very presence of all sin. Now, how should that affect us in the here and now? What should all of that mean to us? That heaven is a place now to which the redeemed of God go upon departure from this earth. That it will be made new in the future. The eternal heaven will be as described. A new location, qualitatively different, with new inhabitants, with a new design, with new necessities. How should that affect you and me in the here and now? You remember I mentioned Peter in Second Peter 3? Peter described what John describes in Revelation 21, that the old heaven and the old earth pass away because they are destroyed. And he says, God is not willing that any should perish. All should come to repentance. He's given time for that. And then Peter concludes that discussion with these words. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping, but in keeping with His promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. If you believe what we've seen from the Word of God today, that there really is a place like that for you in the future, if you believe that, it should have effect, an effect on you right now. You're not tied to this place. This place is not your home. You do not live according to the values and the dictates of this place. Because everything here is going to be destroyed, then you are not to be tied to it. What kind of people should you be? Holy people. Different people. People fitted for a different place. And so, friends, we don't see these truths and then live as the world lives. We say, I'm going to live in a place otherworldly. And because I'm one day going to live in a place that is otherworldly, I'm going to live in this place 
otherworldly. Not like the world lives. Holy lives. Looking forward to our home of righteousness. We're going to bow in just a moment. But I ask you, believing friend, is that the kind of longing and the kind of life that you're pursuing now? As you think about your heavenly home, do you live a holy life before your God, different from the world? As people look at you, do they say he or she moves to the beat of a different drummer? They're not comfortable, completely comfortable in this place because it is not their home. If not, we'll take time to repent. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we will but confess. And then for any here who have not come to Jesus Christ, God is not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance. And he gives you that opportunity now, but make no mistake, God is not slack according to his promise. God destroyed the world in the past, Second Peter 3 says. Peter says people deliberately forget that God destroyed the world by water and he will destroy the world by fire. But God wants you to come to repentance. You can do that right now. You say, what do I do? You realize that you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Every person here is. We have violated God's law willfully, violated God's standard. You have sinned, but Jesus has graciously come to pay the penalty for your sins so that you don't have to pay it yourself. And you repent of your sin. I am not going to follow my way of life. I'm going to follow His. I'm going to learn of Him, and by His grace I'm going to obey Him. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow in just a moment. And when we do, if you have never done that, friend, today is the day of salvation for you. And you pray from your heart to God, not a magical incantation. It's not a magic formula. It is your words, heartfelt before the God who made you, the Savior who died to redeem you. You ask Him to forgive your sin and you give your life to Him and you tell Him, I want to follow you with my life. Take me. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you for this glimpse into your word of this marvelous place and this marvelous future for your people called heaven. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us to grope in the darkness regarding what heaven will be like. You've given us shades of its grandeur in Scripture, but human language simply cannot capture its beauty, its majesty. We thank you that we know, without any doubt, that it exists, that we will be there because of our relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we long for that city like Abraham of old. We're looking for a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. And because we're looking for the heavenly city, we do not live as if we're planning to stay in the worldly city. Lord, we are sojourners, aliens and strangers in this world, you tell us in your word. And our hearts ache because we're absent from our Savior physically. We desire to be with you. As our brother Paul said, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Help us, Lord God, to be people who long for the heavenly city. And it makes a difference in our lives in the here and now. And Lord, our hearts break. Because we see people die and go into eternity. The world is mourning for this past week. Because of the passing of a pop star. We mourn as well. 
Because we have no indication that he ever came to you. And thus we mourn for where any who do not come to you are, will be. And it need not be. Because you're not willing that any should perish. You're giving time. You have brought people to this place in this moment right now to receive Jesus as Savior. I ask you, Lord God, to move on their hearts and draw them to yourself. Snatch them from the fire as it were. And bring glory to yourself through the grace shown to them through the Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that people are praying to receive him as Savior and bowing their hearts before him as Lord. Lord, be glorified in us until you do make heaven our final home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.